Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Math, a channel of the New Books Network. Our guest today is Al Pazimentier, author of The Secret Lives of Numbers. First, this is the first book I've ever seen written by a mathematician that will absolutely, definitely, certainly appeal to people who love numbers and who don't love mathematics. Although I can't understand why they wouldn't. I would urge all listeners to tell everyone they know who has a fascination with numbers to listen to this podcast, especially because, especially if they don't love mathematics, because they will love this book. Al, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Al, I usually start by asking the author what motivated him or her to write this book, but in this case it seems obvious to me. You, like many others, have had a lifelong love affair with numbers. What started this? Well, uh, I taught math. I have been a professor of math for altogether, oh, about 60 years now, and uh, I find that over the last uh, couple of decades, if I ever tell people that my field is mathematics, the first response I get is, oh my God, I was always terrible in math. And so for the last couple of decades, I've tried to write books that would turn the general readership onto math and not off math. And uh, this book is one of those of that kind. Yeah, I think that's very true. That's the reaction that I get when I tell people that I teach math also. Um, What was the reason for the title, The Secret Lives of Numbers? Well, because numbers have a lot of definitions. They are um, uh, the kind of things that we deal with all the time and we don't take any uh, special note of them. They have certain representations, like, for example, the number eight in the uh, Chinese world is a lucky number, and uh, the number 13 is an unlucky number, and so we have... Uh, you know, the, the reason, by the way, for the number 13 to be unlucky from what I've heard is that that's that there were 13 people at the Last Supper. Um, so it's really, it has meaning beyond mathematics, and they also have a lot of meanings within mathematics, the amazing relationships of numbers and the, uh, uh, the, the kinds of things you can do with numbers that are just mind-boggling. Yeah, you know, because I think that some of the listeners will have tuned in just because the book is about numbers. Why do you think so many people find numbers intriguing without being interested in mathematics? Well, because numbers are part of our everyday life. And uh, people take trouble to, uh, uh, to, to get license plates with certain numbers on them and telephone numbers with numbers that mean something to them. And so it, uh, numbers seem to talk to people, and they don't threaten people the way things like algebra or geometry might have in the past. I mean, I, there are some amazing things that you can do with numbers, and I try to show some of them. For example, 
if you take any three-digit number, any three-digit number where the digits are not the same, obviously, and you reverse the three digits and you subtract the two numbers and you take that answer and you add that and you reverse that one and add the two last numbers, you'll always get the number 1089. And you say, well, how does that happen? Why is that? Well, we can explain that but then we need to talk about algebra. So this, in a way, could motivate algebra, and uh, yet there are some relationships in num with numbers that you can't justify. So it's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite amazing how you can do so many things with numbers that uh, are significant in one way and uh, significant in other ways as well, mathematically or just in culture. Yeah, you know... Um... One of the things that happened during my lifetime and yours is that when I started, um, calculation was done either by log tables or slide rules or, of course, calculation by hand. We learned the addition table, we learned the multiplication table, etc. And I can still remember when the first electronic calculators came out, I lined up for two hours so I could spend $90 and buy a four-function calculator with memory. And it was just, I spent the entire day playing with it. And I learned a lot of things about numbers just by playing with the calculators. And do you think calculators have increased or decreased our fascination with numbers? Well, that's a good question because it actually, it has detracted us from playing with numbers, just as you said, because people don't need to know how to subtract or add or multiply because they just use a calculator to do it if they need to do it. Um, it's gotten so bad that if you go to a cash register in a, in a department store, okay, and if the uh, machine doesn't tell them what the change would be when you're paying in cash, the they, people are distraught. They don't know what to do. So quite clearly, the calculator has changed the culture. But if we can show people there are certain things that you can do with uh, numbers where even the calculator helps you, just like the, the example I gave a moment ago, or I can give you a couple more examples. I'll give you one that's uh, quite a, an amazing number, uh, number 6174, uh, which is a Capricorn number, and uh, named after a mathematician by the name of Capricar. And uh, it's quite a, an amazing situation where you take any four-digit number, and you arrange the digits in order largest to smallest and smallest to largest and subtract them. And then you take that answer and arrange those digits from that answer, largest to smallest and smallest to largest, and subtract. And you keep on going, and eventually you will always get, at one point in time, 6174. And when you reach 6174 and you arrange the numbers again in order large to small, small to large to subtract, you'll again get 6174, and you get into a loop. And that in itself is quite an amazing uh, thing that you can show people. Now, they can use the calculator, that's fine, if they don't feel like doing the subtraction, but it's uh, an interesting experience that people are not aware of. And that's what we try to show in the uh, the numbers, there are so many numbers that have so many secrets in them, and they're fun. They're just plain fun. And a lot of people have told me they remember it, they go to dinner, and they show it to their friends at dinner. So it becomes a, 
it's a way of spreading the word that math is not bad. It's fun. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I enjoyed that I saw in one of your other books is that you did the demonstration involving 1089 with a bunch of elementary school children, and they all came up with the same number, 1089. And you told that that not only did it fascinate them, but they were eager to show it to their parents. And that's the type of, you know, that's the type of thing that I feel that you see a lot of in your book. And that's one of the reasons that I'm so interested in having you talk to our audience about the book. But I would hope that those people who find numbers intriguing and come for the numbers would take a look at some of the math and realize that can be every bit as fascinating as the numbers themselves. As a teacher, do you have any ideas that might help parents transition their children from being interested in numbers to being interested in mathematics? Yeah, I think that, first of all, if we can get the parents not to dislike math, because unfortunately, too often, when a kid comes home with his report card, or her report card, and uh, they say, oh, well, I got a, a, a an A in math, and a, an A, in, history, an a in, in English, an A in history, and I got a C in math, and the parent says, oh, I'm glad you passed math. I was never good at math either. And that's the worst thing you can do because they set the bar for math very low and students are just happy just to get past it and not try to excel in this. That's point one. This thing, this book, will show people at all levels, especially parents, that there's a lot of stuff in numbers. They don't have to remember how they solved a quadratic equation and they don't have to know how to prove two triangles congruent or anything like that because this is only about numbers. No algebra, just numbers. And there's so much there and it's all so easy to understand and amazing. Yeah, you know, Al, I'd like to say two things here. The first is that... um, I live on another coast than you, but I'd evolved exactly the same way of teaching mathematics because I had exactly the same idea. I didn't want parents to uh, say, you know, to a child comes home and says to his father, Dad, can you help me with this problem? And Dad says, I hated math. Why don't you ask your mother? And he goes to mom and mom says, I sucked at math. And so the kid gets the idea that this isn't a good thing to talk about. And so we came to exactly the same philosophy. That was the first thing. But the second thing is that because this is about your book, I'd like to give listeners a look at the type of thing you'll find in the book. And one of the reasons that I found the book so fascinating, and I feel that people who don't like math will find the book fascinating. First of all, it's a book starring non-negative integers. Other numbers and other ideas for mathematics make an appearance, but this book is absolutely a treasure trove for people who are fascinated by numbers. And here's an example of what I did when I was looking at this book, and I'm sure others will do something very similar to this. My birthday is August 29th, the 29th day of the eighth month. So I looked up special properties of the numbers 8 and 29. So here are just a couple from the mathematics side. I'm going to do two examples that I didn't realize, because, of course, being a mathematician, I know that 8 is 2 cubed, things like that. Um, The 8th Fibonacci number, which is 21, is 8 greater than 13, which is prime, and 8 less than 29, 
which is prime. So there's 29 appearing. And also, speaking of 29, 29 is 4 plus 9 plus 16. That's 2 squared plus 3 squared plus 4 squared. And so 29 is the smallest prime number that can be written as the sum of three consecutive squares. Now, Outside of mathematics, here's part of the secret lives of 8 and 29 outside the realm of mathematics. As you discussed, the number 8 is considered a lucky number in China, and it's also the atomic number of oxygen, without which we wouldn't be here to discuss the number 8. And from the outside world, the human skull has 29 bones, and Saturn orbits the sun every 29 years. So Al, perhaps you'd like to do this with a couple of your favorites. Well, there's so many things. I mean, you take the 29 and you, uh, if you take 29, it's the largest power of five that contains no two uh, consecutive even uh, digits. I mean, there's so many things that that are a lot of fun. And, uh, I, you know, it's everybody has their own special number. Um, I find that, that you know, uh, I, it, it's difficult for me to pick a number that I think has so I, I gave you a couple of examples but there are so many things just about every number in the first 50 has some unusual characteristics and they're all there so I don't want to single one out as a special number when uh, uh, you know when it's when there's so many like that I, it's like I'm being unfair to others I can understand that, and also there's another reason that uh, what that might uh, that what that might do is it might very well prompt the people who are listening to this audience say, "Well, I was born on June 17th. That's six seventeen. Let me go to the book and see what it says about six and seventeen. So, sure, um, I can uh, I can understand that. Now, when I think of the way numbers occur in the real world, I think of them as occurring both in sort of a natural sense and an idiosyncratic sense. For instance, an idiosyncratic occurrence of the number 212 is that it is the boiling point of water in the Fahrenheit temperature scale, but there are other temperature scales. It's also the area code for New York. But a natural occurrence such as 8 is, 8 is oxygen in the periodic table because the universe decrees that oxygen is the eighth number, is the eighth element in the periodic table because it's the one with eight protons in the nucleus. So um, uh, that's what I think of as a natural occurrence. Yeah, but now, you see, that's very good if you um, like those special features. But even one you just mentioned deserves a little attention. Why is 212 the area code for New York City? Well, there's a reason for that. When they came gave out area codes, the largest population of, of a region was New York City. And on the dial of a telephone, the shortest movements are 212 you couldn't use two you couldn't use the one ones at the beginning because as international and you couldn't use the one ones at the end because 911 and 311 and 411 and so on so you couldn't use those they deserve the one they reserve the one ones for special uh, functions so 212 was the s- smallest movement of the dial and since the most people would get that and of course in the course of time uh, New York was so big, that they had to uh, come up with 718 and a few other area codes because 212 was just not big enough. 
the numbers available. So even there is a reason for why 212 was assigned to New York. Well, for some of our Gen Z listeners who may not know what we're talking about when we talk about dials and telephones, just take a look at a movie or a TV show from the 1950s, and you'll see people actually dialing telephones, and you'll understand what it's about. Or you can Google it. Um, But one of the things about this book that I absolutely loved, I love odd facts, and I love odd facts about numbers because I love numbers, and this book is chock full of them from many different areas of human endeavor, history, science, sports, geography. And I also like the fact that you delve a little into what I think of as number-based etymology. You talked about triskaidekaphobia before, but um, you also brought up the fact, which I didn't know, and which is something that's relevant to this particular period in time, that the number quarantine is uh, has its etymology based in a number and maybe you'd like to just take a moment to explain that uh, since you found it you do that oh okay that, <laughs> but it's in the book um quarantine comes from the number 40 and the reason that it's relevant to our time is because of course everybody knows about going into quarantine after you test positive for covid but back in the day and we're going way back in the day now to the time of the black death which was a lot more horrible than covid because it you know because it first of all it created tremendously ugly deaths and it killed off about a quarter of Europe. But what they would do is if a boat came into a harbor and people on it had uh, bubonic plague, the Black Death, they would situate the boat outside the harbor for 40 days. And 40 days is quarant or something like that in Italian. And Quaranta in quarantine meant that you kept people away from other people for 40 days because it was felt that that was the amount of time that was needed. And you notice that we've cut the quarantine period down to 10 days for uh, 10 days for COVID. But that fascinated me because, um, I mean, a number that I didn't see, I, you know, I knew that the word decimate had to do with the number 10, but I didn't know about quarantine. So thanks for putting that in the book. Well, I just want to make sure you read the book. Okay. (laughs) Al, I always read your book. (laughs) On the other hand, I have to say that in reading the book, I felt tremendously sorry for whoever had to proofread the manuscript because I've been a proofreader. Um, I I proofread my own manuscripts. And also back in the day, I was uh, the managing editor of uh, the Yale Scientific Magazine, and we had to proofread the articles on those. And proofreading is difficult even when you have to read words that make sense. But if you have to proofread a 15-digit number and go over and over it again in the book, it must you know, it must really be difficult. So I have to ask you, Al, did you proofread your own book? Well, you do to a certain extent. And I will admit to you that there are a few typographical errors. Uh, I just, uh, one that I noticed as you read it, the I, use, I want to say the number <laughs> T-W-O and the word T-O came out. But in context, you read it so fast, you'd hardly even notice it. But there are little typos that do occur. Uh, not too much in the uh, uh, um, in the in the body of the uh, numbers, but uh, it happens. It always happens. No matter how many, you know, I've written quite a few books, and I don't think there's ever been a book 
where it's edited on and on and on by various editors, and it still slips by. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, boy, I've had the exactly the same experience. I haven't written anywhere near as many books you have, but I've written, you know, I've written a bunch and uh, it always happens. Even when there's an editor who reads it initially, then it goes to the copy editor and the copy editor sends it to you and asks you to read it again. They still sneak through. And the amazing thing is you discover them as soon as the book is printed. (laughs) It's fascinating. Anyway, um, part of my fascination with numbers and arithmetic comes from the fact that I loved baseball. To this day, I remember that the decimal equivalent of 413 is decimal point 308 because that's the batting average of a player who goes 4 for 13 or 8 for 26 or any multiple of 4 hits and 13 at bats. And actually that was one of the things that prompted my interest in numbers because I was so interested in baseball. Um, I got interested in the arithmetic that goes along with baseball and I worry to a certain extent when I watch baseball on TV nowadays, all the numbers that you see flashed on a screen, you get buried in a blizzard of numbers. Al, I don't know whether or not you still watch baseball, but I wonder if you've had a reaction like this or how you feel about numbers in sports. Well, as I, when I was a kid, I also knew all the batting averages and I watched the uh, basketball games and what the folks scored and so on. Uh, I've sort of put that aside for a while, and I don't know if to what extent they're doing it now, but in those days, uh, we didn't have the technology that, that's available today, so we had to do a lot of uh, mental work and memory and so on. So I think it's not completely a fair comparison of what you did when you were young and what I did when I was young, but uh, there are a lot of things in, in, in with numbers, and as you noticed uh, sometimes they don't come out to be whole numbers, and I do have a few special numbers in here which are not whole numbers, like the number pi, and everybody knows what pi is, um, and uh, you know the uh, ratio of the circumference to the diameter of a circle it has a lot of wonderful things attached to it. Matter of fact, I wrote a book about pi, uh, just about pi, and uh, then there's the uh, famous golden ratio, which is uh, an amazing, amazing uh, item from a numerical point of view, and then the fact that it, uh, it it's beautiful in art and in, in, uh, in architecture and so on, so that uh, I do mention that and all the things you can do with it. And of course, then you have, then this, you mentioned earlier, the Fibonacci numbers, which are probably the most amazing numbers, and uh, I also talk a little bit about Mr. Fibonacci, whose real name was Leonardo of Pisa, and uh, the Fibonacci came from uh, son of of, uh, Bonacci, and uh, he's actually the fellow we should credit the most for this book, because he's the one who introduced the numbers that we use, the uh, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, uh, in the the European world. and the Western world, actually. Uh, he was a young fellow working with mathematicians in the Arabian world, and uh, they were using these 
as they call them, Indian numbers, because they do stem from India. And uh, that's why we call them Hindu-Arabic numbers, because they came from Hindu, they were found in the Arabic world, and that's how they came to this country. As a matter of fact, Fibonacci uh, wrote a book um, uh, called Liber Abaci, which published first in 1202. And that's the first time a book was published in the European world which introduced those numbers. And as a matter of fact, the first line of his book is, I'm using these numbers, 9876543321, in this book. And then he said, and also the Zephyr, the zero, and uh, he referred to them as the Indian numbers. So that's where that comes from. But... uh, there's so much in that book that's really amazing, and in the in chapter 12 of that book is a problem of the regeneration of pairs of rabbits, and uh, he gives a solution, and it wasn't until the 1800s when Eduardo Lucas, a mathematician, uh, highlighted that problem, because that problem generates what we now call the Fibonacci numbers, namely two numbers that start with 1-1, one, one, and you add those two to get two, and you add one and two to get three, and you add two and three to get five, and three and five to get eight, and five and eight to get 13, and so on. Always the last two numbers generate, the sum of the last two numbers generates the next number. And that is the most amazing sequence of numbers in all of mathematics, without any doubt. It, it, it is just, wherever you look, it's found. I was even told by uh, a f- financial friend as I was writing a book about the Fibonacci numbers uh, and asked me why I haven't included finance. I said, what do you mean finance? He said, yeah, we use the Fibonacci numbers in finance. I said, you're kidding. Well, he then had people send me emails for the next couple of hours on how they used in in finance, so I put a chapter in a book on how the Fibonacci numbers are used in finance. It's a it's a quite amazing thing, and we have those Fibonacci numbers here, and uh, they are just amazing. I'll tell you how I use them on a regular basis. When I travel in a country, say Canada or Europe, that uses the metric system as opposed to our uh, miles and use kilometers, you can convert kilometers and miles instantly if you know the Fibonacci numbers. If you're going 13 miles or 13 miles per hour, either one, you go to the next higher number, which would be 21, and that would be 21 kilometers. And if you're going the other direction, if you told something is, say, 13 kilometers, you go down one, which would be eight, and so 13 kilometers would be equivalent eight miles. It's not exact, but it's very, very close. And the reason that it's very, very close is fascinating because this is one of the things about the Fibonacci numbers that I love because my branch of mathematics is a little different from uh, yours. But one of the things about the Fibonacci series is if you take the ratio of successive Fibonacci numbers, 13 divided by 8, 21 divided by 13, 34 divided by 21, 55 divided by 34, they approach the golden ratio. And the golden ratio is very close to the conversion factor of miles to kilometers. And that's why it works. It's beautiful. Exactly. And the golden ratio, when it's seen as a rectangle, uh, you get the golden ratio by taking a rectangle whose dimensions are such that the width to the length is equal to the length to the width plus length. 
And that rectangle is noted by many psychologists over the years as the most beautiful rectangle. And for example, just to take a simple example, if you take uh, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa and you en uh, enclose Mona Lisa's face in a rectangle, that's a perfect golden rectangle. And it's not by chance, I don't believe, because Fibonacci did know about the golden rectangle since he drew diagrams for a book that was written about the golden ratio. Well, the Greeks certainly knew about the golden sure. ratio. And um, I'm pretty sure that the uh, dimensions of the Parthenon are in the golden ratio. Correct. Yeah, I mean, that uh, uh, that astounded me. And I could go on. One of the things that has amazed me over the years is learning how adept the Greek mathematicians were because they had nothing to work with. They didn't, you know, I don't know what they wrote with. They didn't write with pencil and paper. They didn't have erasers. And they still managed to do all this amazing stuff. Those guys were absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Anyway, I'm going to disagree with you again. I don't think the Fibonacci numbers are the most amazing sequence of numbers. I think the most amazing sequence of numbers are the prime numbers. And maybe you could talk a little bit about why the prime numbers are so important to mathematicians and why they're also so important to our daily lives. And also, what is a prime number for those members of our audience who, you know, turned in, tuned in because they wanted to hear about numbers and we feel they should know something about the important numbers? Well, prime numbers are uh, numbers whose, uh, who have exactly two divisors. Now, that's a new definition. The old definition was a little bit more, uh, a little simpler, because one is not a prime number since it doesn't have two divisors. It only has one, number one. Uh, you take the number three, it has two divisors, the number one and the number three. The number seven has two divisors, the number seven and number one. Uh, what makes it so special really depends on uh, your field of interest. It, it, you could ask five mathematicians and they'll give you five different answers. So I, 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 I'm a little bit queasy about responding to your question about why they're so important. Everybody will come up with a different uh, definition. Well, I have to say, okay, so, uh, I got to put in a plug for uh, for why I think they're important. Um, there are uh, there are things in math. I think the most important theorem in mathematics is the Pythagorean theorem that we learn in high school. But there are a number of theorems in mathematics that are called the fundamental theorem of such and such. If there were a fundamental theorem of geometry, it would be the Pythagorean theorem. But the fundamental theorem of arithmetic is the fact that every number can be written in one and only one way as the product of primes, as long as you don't care what order they're in. So if you take a number like 60 and you start decomposing it, 60 is 4 times 15, that's 4 is 2 times 2, 15 is 5 times 3, so you get 2 times 2 times 3 times 5. But if you went about it in another way and you, went, you wrote 60 is 6 times 10, 6 is 2 times 3, 10 is 2 times 5, and that's 2 times 3 times 2 times 5, 2 twos, a 3, and a 5. So every number can be written, the fundamental theorem of, arith of arithmetic, that every number can be written as the product of two prime, I'm sorry, as the product, uniquely as a product of primes, is extremely important to arithmetic, but it's also important to our daily lives. And 
This is, um, uh, I know it's your book, but I have to tell a story because this is such a good story. There was a, a mathematician named G.H. Uh, Hardy who lived in, a British mathematician who lived in the first half of the 20th century. And he spent his life investigating questions in number theory. He was, you know, he loved numbers. He would have loved the secret lives of numbers. He would have probably made a contribution to it. In fact, I'm sure he made a contribution to it. But um, one of the things that uh, he also did was having spent his life uh, investigating the properties of numbers. He wrote a book called the Ma- A Mathematician's Apology. And in A Mathematician's Apology, he basically said, you know, I've done nothing useful in my entire life. I've investigated what I think of as beauty, the beauty of the relationship of numbers to each other. And I know that nobody's ever going to care about this, but I feel that I, you know, that my life is every bit as valuable as that of an artist who's spent investigating his idea of what constitutes beauty, even if nothing ever gets done with the work that I did. And Hardy died sometime, I think, in the 19th. 1950s. And if he'd only lived about 30 years more, he would have learned about something called the RSA algorithm. And the RSA algorithm um, is an algorithm that protects the secrecy of our passwords, the passwords that we use every day for our bank accounts, our email accounts, everything. Because what makes the RSA algorithm produce uncrackable, um, uncrackable passwords or passwords that can only be cracked with a lot of computers and years of time to spend on those computers is that it is so difficult to factor numbers that are the product of two Two very large primes, and this is exactly what Hardy did. So it's just amazing. I mean, Hardy thought he'd spend his life doing nothing worthwhile, and it turned out that what he did affects practically everyone on this planet. And that's the type of story you see in Al's book. Well, you should also mention the Goldbach's conjecture. Go right uh, ahead. Yeah, uh, Christian Goldbach, uh, in 1742, wrote a letter to what was then probably maybe the world-famous mathematician Leonard Euler, and told him in a letter, which is available online, you can look at it in its original form, that every number greater than two can be expressed as the sum of two primes. Every even number. Yeah, you're right. And uh, he just put it out there, and uh, it was quite uh, shocking then, and... Numbers greater than five could be expressed sum of three, and so on. But uh, it's very interesting how that has never been proved. He just said it's possible, and no one has ever shown that it can't be done. So here is a conjecture, not a theorem, Goldbach's conjecture, as it is known. And it's quite interesting. You can play around with it as much as you want, and it will uh, show you that no matter what number you use, you can do what he said expresses the sum of two primes. Goldbach's conjecture also has one of the most interesting theorems that I know of 
um, in this area of mathematics because in 1940, there was uh, about then, there was a Russian mathematician who he wasn't able to prove that every even number was the sum of two primes, which was Goldbach's conjecture, but he was able to prove that every even number was the sum of not more than 300,000 primes. I mean, that's just weird. It's like the number 300,000. 300,000 popped out of the work that he did. And so this is sort of the way that mathematics works. Somebody gets a weird result like this. And then mathematicians look at what the proof of that was, and they start whittling away at it. And that number 300,000 has been whittled down to, I think, four. I think mathematicians have managed to show that every even number is the sum of four or fewer primes. But they haven't gotten it down to two yet, and you can, you know, you'll, uh, your name will go down in the history books if you're the last person to do that. Now, right. most of us know about squares and cubes because uh, a number such as two squared is the area of a square whose side is two units on each side. And the number such as four cubed, which is 64, that's the volume of a cube, each of whose sides are four units. But there are other numbers that are geometrical in nature. And one of them that appears in your book is are the triangular numbers. What's a triangular number? Well, the simplest way to refer to it is a number where if you have, let's say, uh, a number of uh, disks that you can arrange an equilateral triangle. So one would be clearly trivial, but if you have three, uh, say, three coins, three pennies, uh, you can arrange them and they would uh, look like an equilateral triangle. The next one would be uh, six, where you have one, two, and three rows, and everybody probably has gone bowling and seeing the 10 is another one where um, you have 10 uh, pins in the shape of an equilateral triangle because that's also a triangular number. So there are quite a few uh, triangular numbers. They go on and on and on. Uh, just to give you a sense, zero is one if you want to be technical. One, three, six, 10, 15, 21, 28, 36, and so on. And while we're on the number 28, as I just mentioned, uh, there are two numbers I just mentioned that have a very special uh, 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 meaning or definition. Uh, the number 6 and the number 28 I just mentioned. Uh, the number 6 can also be expressed as a sum of its factors. Now, the factors of 6 are 1, 2, and 3. And if you add 1, 2, and 3, you get uh, the number 6. The number 28 is also the sum of its factors. Now, the factors of 28 are 1, 2, 4, 7, and 14. When you add up 1 plus 2 plus 4 plus 7 plus 14, you get 28. And those are called perfect numbers. So there you have another category of numbers that are uh, worthy of consideration. And there aren't that many. So, you know, the next one after 28 is 496. And the one after that is 8,128. So, I mean, they are there, but the first few, we have a couple of nice perfect numbers. And then to get further perfect numbers, you really got to go further on. But as I say, 
it's all fun, and it's uh, interesting to see if you can discover further. But uh, with the calculator and the computer, uh, people can do some discovering that they couldn't do before. Boy, that's very true. One of the things that uh, I appreciate um, is that it's not just calculators. Calculators, um, uh, calculators enable you to do simple, I'd, I'd say simple calculations, namely the type of thing that used to be uh, used to be done by accountants or maybe, you know, accountants are done with slide rules. You can do them more accurately. You can do them more quickly. But computers are amazing because not only, you know, they're not only amazing because they're, because of what everybody's familiar with as far as uh what computers bring, but they bring a new tool to mathematics that enables levels of exploration that had never been done before. And um, uh, there have been, admittedly, this isn't uh, this this isn't one of the types of things that you see in uh, that you see in Al's book. But I am sure that Al has written about this because he's written. I think Al has written over seventy books, and somewhere in them. Is something that people have talked about that you hear uh, that you hear discussed. Something called the butterfly effect, and the butterfly effect was discovered by a math uh, well a mathematician named Edward Lorenz, who was who discovered it while playing with a calculator, and what he discovered was that he discovered that the solutions to very important equations, which govern the flow of uh, the jet stream, the clouds, the weather that determine our weather, because our weather is actually determined by equations and initial conditions. If you change the initial conditions very slightly, the solutions become substantially different. And Lorenz was the person who brought up the name butterfly effect, because what he said was, he said, these equations are really delicate. It turns out that if a butterfly fly flaps its wings in Hawaii, that may cause a tornado to occur in Oklahoma three weeks later. And until people started playing around with computers, which can do all, you know, computers can now do billions of computations, probably trillions of computations in a second. Nobody could possibly see these patterns before. And these are patterns involving numbers and these patterns are important patterns, such as the butterfly effect, and they're patterns involving numbers, which is what Al's book talks about, and they're patterns which are made possible for us to see by means of computers. So I think computers are wonderful. They're, uh, they're a double-edged sword. Like practically every tool that we discover, there's a double, they're a double-edged sword. Um, but they, they make visible things that we never saw before. And just like telescopes make visible things we never saw before, microscopes make thing, visible things we never saw before, computers make visible things we never saw before. And Al, you know, you talked about perfect numbers. Here's a question about perfect numbers that I don't know the answer to, and I don't know whether it has an answer, but either you know the answer or you'll know where to find the answer, and that's, are there an infinite number of perfect numbers? I know there are an infinite number of prime numbers. Um, Euclid showed that, but are there an infinite number of perfect numbers? I believe there are, and I don't know if it's ever been proved. 
because when you deal with infinity, it's beyond what the calculator can do. For example, um, a lot of amazing things occur when you take, um, say, the golden ratio to, uh, I'll say, close, uh, approaching infinity in terms of its uh, value in the decimal system or the number pi or some. Uh, it's, it's not, we can never prove these things. We can just say we've never seen an end to it. And I think that's probably the best answer one can give there. But uh, the, when you're talking about things that people can do with numbers, there's also the palindromic numbers, which are very interesting. For example, you know, a palindromic number is a number that reads backwards and forward. Like 1331 reads backwards and forward the same. And that happens to be 11 cubed but that's just a very special one, or 11 squared is 121. And there are a number of cute palindromic numbers that, that are, or, or squares of numbers that are um, uh, palindromic. However, there's a very unusual uh, technique which almost works in every case, but not every case, and that is if you take any number, any two-digit number, or start with a two-digit number or a three-digit number, it doesn't matter, uh, and you re reverse it and you add the reverse, you, you, you get the sum and you reverse it again and you reverse, reverse and you keep adding, eventually you're going to end up with a palindromic number. I think the first one that doesn't work, I think, is 97 when you get up to that. In other words, if you take, like, say, 23 and add it to 32, you get 55, that's an easy one. And sometimes you have to go a little bit further than that. Uh, there's one I remember once showing a group, uh, try this one, and, they, and some guy wrote me and he said, I did it 23 times and it didn't come up. I said, you need to do it one more time and it'll work. And sure enough, at the 24th time it worked. So if you take a number, reverse it, add, reverse, add, reverse, add, reverse, add, eventually you'll get a palindromic number, which, by the way, will only work for most numbers. There are very few. I think the first one that doesn't work, I think, is 97. I'm not sure, 96 or 97. And uh, I think then it, there's one in the hundreds that doesn't work. But it works quite frequently, and it's very nice to do, and uh, a cute little uh, number game, if you will. Well, another uh, another number that I've known about and saw in your book was the number 153. And 153 is interesting because it's 1 cubed plus 5 cubed plus 3 cubed. But I never knew that this was called an Armstrong number. Yeah, that's true. And, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. Well... I think Armstrong numbers are such that if you write them out in decimal form, uh, for instance, like 153, 153 is 1 cubed plus 5 cubed plus 3 cubed. And I think an Armstrong number is one such that if you take the decimal representation of it and then take its digits separately to various powers, such as 1 to the third power, 5 to the third power, three to the third power and add them up, then you get the number that you started with. That's what makes an Armstrong number. And 
as I said, I didn't know about this, but you were discussing a moment ago that there are instances in which infinity makes it very difficult to work with. But when I saw in your book that I think there are only 28 Armstrong numbers, but you can sort of see why the number of Armstrong numbers is limited because powers grow much faster than numbers themselves. And when so when you start taking things like, for instance, third powers or fourth powers, etc., you're going to get really large numbers and they're going to be much larger than the number of digits that were being used. For instance, if you were to look at something like 789 and see if that's an Armstrong number by seeing if it's 7 cubed plus 8 cubed plus 9 cubed. Well, 7 cubed is big, 8 cubed is big, 9 cubed is big. So no, it's going to be, you know, it. Uh, when you add up the cubes, it's going to be much larger than the number itself. And sooner or later, this process is going to, you know, this process is going to swamp. Um, the, the process of taking exponents is going to swamp the number itself. So there are instances in which you can see that there are only a finite number of particular types of numbers. And I was just wondering if anything, anyone had done those for the perfect numbers. But while we're talking about conjectures, and uh, there's a very cute little uh, scheme that everybody can use just on a napkin, if you will, uh, called the Collard's uh, uh, conjecture, which is a very cute little scheme. And again, I say conjecture because it's not been proved to be true forever. It, no one has disproved it, but since there's no proof, it's still called a conjecture. And uh, it goes this way. You take any number, and if it's an even number, you divide it in half. You take half of it. If it's an odd number, you multiply it by 3 and add 1. And if you start off with any number at all and do that, take uh, say if it's an odd number, multiply it by 3, add 1. If the result is an even number, you take half, and you keep on going this way till you reach and you will always reach the number one and it's quite funny how no matter what you begin with you will always end up with the number one and then once you have the number one you're finished because you can't take half of it or you know it, it is odd so you can multiply it by three add one uh, that gives you four divide by two you get one and then it's an even number you divide by two and you're back to one again so it's a very cute thing and i think it's a good way for us to end our lovely interview because I noticed we're running a little shy in time and I thought this would be a fun thing to do. Again, the Collartz, C-O-L-L-A-R-T-Z, conjecture, uh, is one where it's sometimes referred to as a 3N plus 1 problem where you take any number, if it's odd, you multiply by 3 and add 1, and if the result is even, you divide by 2, and if it's odd, you keep on doing the 3n plus 1. And it's a lovely scheme, but you always will end up with 1. It'll take a little while. Sometimes it'll take one step, maybe five steps, ten steps, whatever. But it's a fun thing. Well, Al, I always enjoy interviewing you, and I'm sure that, especially as you've touched on things involving numbers which fascinate people, there are going to be some members of our, some of our listeners will want to get in touch with you. So how can our listeners get in touch with you? Well, probably the best way is uh, email. My email address is asp1818 at gmail.com. 
Got to ask, is 1818 a special number? Well, 18 is my birthday, and uh, in the uh, in the Hebrew world, 18 is a lucky number because when in the old days when they didn't use the numbers we use, the letters for 18 also spell out the word life, and that makes it a lucky number. But it's also my birthday in October, so if you want to send me a birthday card, October 18th works. Well, I'm not going to send you a birthday card, but I'll wish you a happy birthday a few weeks late. (laughs) Al, it's been a pleasure. Take care. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Sure.